Hello and welcome to what is now going to be Creators on Couches Getting Comfy. I'm your host Dave Wiskus, joined by uh, the tiny and adorable Pixel. And with us today is Low Spec Alex, the Low Spec Gamer. My friend, your friend. Hi, Alex. And also not tiny or adorable, depending on who you ask. I don't know, I'd say you're adorable. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank I you. I mean, the people who are watching the video version of this can draw their own conclusions, but um, you know, I, I've, I find you to be uh, like if there were a plush version of you. I could see that happening. Yeah, like a plush low spec Alex. That makes sense. I'm just going to switch to Alex for the rest of the show, or that's going to get old. You know the show. We're not doing an interview. This is not an interview. I have a long list of interesting things to talk about. As far as I understand, this yes. is a, a public opportunity for me to argue with you, which is interesting. <laughs> so the the nature of our relationship is is interesting. So a lot of the people that are on the show, it's um, either folks who are um, it, well, it's mostly been creators that, that I work with. So people who are basically my boss. Um, you are, I don't think exactly the first, because Jordan technically, but I think that was also before she started working here. You're also staff. Yep. So you're my boss and I'm your boss. It's, it's, like a it's complicated. Cycle here in any given conversation. Who mm-hmm. knows who's uh, in charge? But you went from being, I wouldn't say even went from, you, you increased the number of things that you do from being YouTuber making YouTube videos to in addition to doing that, you are also, you run our talent team. Yes, and more, I think the interesting bit about that is that having been a professional creator, whatever that means, for many years, someone who does YouTube content for a living right. uh, for many years, and then taking the leap to also see how things work on the side of an agency that represents creators, has given me an interesting amount of perspective on sort of the, the, the whole way the industry is stacked. And it has led to a lot of lessons that I did not expect. It's more complicated than you thought. It's tremendous, not, not just more complicated, different. There's a lot of assumptions that I had uh, that were incorrect. And there's a, like what? Let's start by something pretty important. This is a weird industry. This is yeah. a deeply weird industry. And a new industry. Yes. Like we're using a lot of tools that uh, are inherited from older industries, but we're making this shit up as we go along. But even, even though the, the closest equivalent, I guess, we have to an older industry is something like traditional media. Mm-hmm. TV or radio. It's, yeah, it, it's still... Okay, so this isn't something as specific to the business of talent inside Nebula, but I think the business of Nebula as a whole and this is part of a larger conversation that I believe we have had in the past. But uh, as a surprise to nobody, a lot of people who have found themselves running their own YouTube channel as a business have little to no previous business experience. And therefore, yes. it's very easy to make a lot of assumptions, as I did, yes, of how 100%. things should work in a business uh, that are very specific to the creator economy and not actually appear anywhere else. Or built out of tribal knowledge and things they heard their friends say. Their friends who are also not like uh, uh, storied and experienced business people. Exactly. So the the role of, I'm going to use the A word, the algorithm in all of this <laughs> is pretty interesting. Because one when when you look at things from my 
a job inside Nebula and staff on Nebula. It's like it's a company, and when you have a company, when you have a more I don't know how to call it traditional because I think there's nothing traditional about us, but a more regular business. Mm -hmm. If you don't go out there and tell people what you're doing, the business doesn't grow. Right. That's why marketing exists. That is why it's always like a part of any business. When you run a YouTube business, there are people who regularly pay like AdSense to appear on other creators' shows to try and, and gain some, uh, I don't know, reputation and have people recognize mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. That is the thing that happens. That is, however, extremely far from the norm. Like for the majority of people, you don't, you very rarely think of, oh, what's the marketing that I do for my business? What you do is try to make the best content possible right. and then optimize it in a way that people will like it and the algorithm will do the marketing for you. And that yes. is very unique. It is. The way I, I describe this, I might have even said it on the show before, but the trouble with YouTubers as a, as a, as a construct typically is that it's a group of people, a group of successful people where their success comes from an audience and that audience is brought to them for free by a system that they don't control or understand, the algorithm. And then a separate system that they don't control or understand, AdSense, brings them money for that audience. So it's really easy if you show up and you make videos and now you're getting an audience and you're getting money, it's very easy to feel like you earned that. You didn't. There are ways to, to uh, stack that up and earn it, but it's, it's, it's kind of, there's a ton of luck in it, um, certainly a ton of skill, but a lot of it is just like, what is your starting level acumen? And then is that enough to snowball? Exactly, but it isn't that when you have any sort, any sort of uh, regular business, the things you're thinking about is how much money you're spending in marketing so people can hear about you, you can grow, and what is your sales? What are you selling and what is the amount of money that yeah. is coming from sales? When you treat, uh, when you analyze a channel as a business, you look at it and it's like, okay, what's your marketing? I don't know. It's the algorithm and the promotion. And what is your sales? AdSense, I guess. Right, right. But you don't know like what, where that comes from or how that works. Yeah, the machine just works. The machine so, just does it. So there's a bunch of like black boxes. The, the things that in any previous industry will have been like the basic things that you will keep your eye on. And this one are black boxes. Yeah. And that is insane to me. Yeah, and you get people like, um, and, and I'll name the, the folks we like, like uh, Patty Galloway. Mm -hmm. who is out there trying to, to teach people how to look at analytics and trying to teach people how to build thumbnails, build titles, build strategy. And that's great. But what I don't see a lot of is how do you YouTube as a business? These are all like programmatic hacks for a lack of a better, like there's systemic things that you can tap into or encourage, but none of this teaches you how to run your channel as a business. Mm -hmm. Now all those stats matter, and I'm not saying they don't, um, I'm, I am an advocate of improve your titles, improve your thumbnails, improve the first 30 seconds of your video. These are how you build um, algorithmic consistency and algorithmic momentum. But fundamentally, understanding where the money comes from and how to make more of it happen, most creators think that it's just, if I get more views, I get more money, the end. And there's no other thought that goes into it. So what you're optimizing for is reach, breadth. Mm -hmm. And there's not a ton I see uh, that is optimization for depth. And that's where most of the money comes from. Think about it this way. Like one, when someone is considering if they should approach YouTube as a business, what's the most common question they give you? Oh, 
how many views do I need to make X amount of money? Like yeah. that's probably the number one question. That pops well, how many up. calls have we been on with new creators who are looking to come in and they'll ask us, well, how much can I get per video? Yeah, exactly. And the answer it's is always the same. I don't know. How much are you worth? <laughs> we'll find out together and we'll get you that much. Like I can't yeah. promise you a million dollars. That's just, that's not reasonable. That's not sane. Yeah, but it's, the, the whole thing is built on lack of information in a way that is particularly unique. And I say that like the, the, the eye-opening experience of me of being on both sides of this equation has been realizing how a lot of these are mistakes that I have made in the past, a lot of considerations that I haven't made in the past, mm. or how a lot of the successes that I have managed to get have been uh, not by accident, but by having an instinctual understanding of what's going on, but not a fully yeah. like, rational one. Yeah, you can ride on intuition. Exactly. And it, the people who have the strongest, I think, intuition, um, and, and you know, I could name a hundred names in this space, people who like show up and they just kind of in their gut get it. You can see how they can ride that mm -hmm. and like build it up, build it up. And they can, you know, I don't know if this is a problematic term, but you get like these sort of savants. Yeah. And then they, they, if, if you were enough of a savant and you have a long enough lucky streak, then you get painted as a messiah. Yeah. Like you, it almost becomes religious. There are a handful of people we can point to on YouTube and say, that guy is the true genius. But the truth is that guy might just be somebody who had a, a really good instinct mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. just hasn't lost yet. Yeah. Like let's approach it from the side of sponsorships, which is probably the, the, the thing that you and I talk about more often. By the way, this is the most creator economy conversation. Should, on this show so the, far? Yeah, like it's supposed to be a creator economy show, but it's mostly this just like happens. creators bitching at each other. Well, this is like, now we're in the weeds. This is great. If, if anybody watching this knows me from previous stuff, they will know that the things, if you catch me in any particular moment, I'm either going to talk about like video games, mm -hmm. tech history, or like creator economy stuff. It's like where the needle falls, right. like whatever yeah. is on my head at that moment. Um, but uh, okay, so the fascinating thing, because I understood this when I, when I was simply on the creator side, because we have had this conversation and I understood it, but I hadn't fully internalized until I started helping other people with their sponsorships, mm. how bonkers the whole system is. Because something, uh, for those at home that, have maybe a superficial knowledge of how the sponsorship thing works. Brands are not looking at sponsoring a channel and being like, ooh, how many views are we going to get? You and I know this. They don't care. It's not a thing they care about. How many times have you heard a sponsor ask us for uh, channels with a certain number of subscribers? Not once. Not no, it, it doesn't happen. It happened once and it was like a red flag and immediately was followed by, oh, I don't know, I'm very new at this. I'm just yeah. trying to figure it out. And I'm like, oh, okay, that explains that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, that's not how influencer marketing That's not works. how this works. No. It's usually when, when someone approaches the idea of, oh, I want to sponsor channels with this much subscribers. That's an immediate red flag that is someone that doesn't fully understand how this works. Not even fully, even superficially. But like the, the, the whole concept when, when a brand ask, oh, how many average views can we expect like this video that we're going to get? They don't really care about that. What they're trying to do is some math in their heads on trying to approximate how much that leads to conversions to their product based on like preview similar channels. That's the thing that they're really trying to get to. And it's usually our starting point. If yes. a creator comes to us like, I'll roughly guess that for every 100,000 views, it's going to be somewhere between 500 to to $1,000 probably is the mm -hmm. sponsor rate. 
And even that, like kids at home, that doesn't mean that that's how much you deserve. It just means that like generally that's not a bad place to start. And you can kind of work up from there, work down from there as you gather more data. Uh, The thought, and I hear this all the time, my favorite is uh, I've heard creators say, I know that sponsorships are supposed to be a $30 CPM. And I, I always ask like, who the fuck told you that? <laughs> yeah. How much does a sponsored video cost? It's like, how much does dinner cost? Yeah, exactly. I don't know, where are you eating? McDonald's versus a Wolfgang Puck restaurant are going to be different experiences with different price tags. Yep. The food might weigh the same. Do you think that that's <laughs> the metric? It, it just doesn't work like that. But then like, think about it from a business perspective. You and I know that then what's the closest to a creator's business sales are the amount of conversions they're getting through sponsorships. Mm-hmm. But the status quo, the way most of the industry has been built to work with, is hiding that information from creators. Yes. So creators are going around running their business with absolutely no way to know what their sales are yeah. and no way of knowing that they should be asking that question. Isn't that bonkers? Like, how is this industry working? And it leads to crazy shit. Like, um, th- there's a a sort of toxicity mm-hmm. that, that I don't think gets enough discussion where you'll get a big name creator and I'm so tempted to name names right now, <laughs> but there are really big people on YouTube uh, who they, they will get views, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do good numbers, but they've inflated themselves up enough that they'll, they'll only work with brands for certain dollar amounts and they have enough like cultural cachet or they have like just enough pull that they can convince a brand to pay them that. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that doesn't magically increase the sponsor's marketing budget. So when giant education YouTuber uh, who gets tens of millions of views uh, works with a brand and gets a comically large paycheck, where do you think that money comes from? It comes from all of the creators who overperformed but didn't have as much brand value. Yep. So a lot of times these really big creators are cashing their checks at the expense of the smaller folks. And that's the part that um, I find very frustrating because it's not sustainable. Oftentimes these sponsors will do that once, realize it didn't pay off for them, and then circle back to the other creators the following month and not work with that creator again. But for those really big names, they will hop from brand to brand and keep doing this throughout the year, and they think they're winning. They're pulling in six figures per sponsorship when probably, uh, for all we know, the actual conversion numbers would put them in the like, you know, maybe maybe high five figures. Where does the money come from? Yeah, so that is, that is something else that I think is very specific to the place we are in this industry right now that I find fascinating, that it's also so opaque that people don't realize that they're doing it. And I again, I said this as someone who has made this mistake on their channel in the past, that you run a couple of brands at a certain rate, and you're like, oh, okay, so that's my rate now. That's what I should be expecting. I'm not going to get out of bed for, for less than this. You could sustain yourself doing that for a very long period of time because you are, you are of a certain size that you can bring a new sponsor in every single video mm-hmm. who is going to believe that they're going to convert at that level that you're charging them. Not going to happen. They're not rebooking. Okay, next one to show up. And as long as the creator economy continues growing at a certain pace, 
you could basically survive every winter by burning bridges because new bridges are constantly being built. Yep. And that works until you, your growth outpaces the growth of the bridge building industry. This analogy is it's, it's, it's breaking down. It's not working. I but, follow. <laughs> but it's very easy to look at it and be like, okay, this is the status quo. This is how things work. And then it's not only until you like zoom out to it to be like, whoa, this, this, this sounds like a bubble. This sounds like something that is going to break down eventually yeah. and just come crashing down very hard. Yeah, the, the creators, we've already seen it. Like when there was all this tension around, will there be a recession? Will there be a recession? There's probably not going to be a recession. But plenty of companies are taking advantage of this opportunity to say like, oh, we can scale back budget or we can lay some people off, which mm -hmm. only scares people more. But the folks who are paranoid about this and like being more cautious about spend, what did we see going into Q1? We saw a lot of sponsors who were uh, being much more cautious about how they spend. And what they did from our perspective was not slash prices across the board for everybody. It was let's put our eggs in the safest baskets. Mm -hmm. The creators who have performed well historically will continue to get sponsorships and the new folks we're going to hold off on or people who were... Uh, big names but didn't really pull their weight, we're going to hold off on. Mm -hmm. And so for them, the, the belts get tightened. The, the big folks who weren't pulling their weight, the belts get tightened a little bit because the, the ability to overspend on some people just to keep them around, um, there is like an element, I think, of it's sometimes worth overpaying an underperforming creator just to make sure that they don't go work with a competitor, mm -hmm. which might be bad for you. Um, there's less of that. So what happens? The, the sort of middle class creators who are actually like looking at the data and working hard and, and counting the conversions, getting, getting the data in the first place can be really tough. So I don't wanna, I'm not here to shame somebody for not having you know, the best information. Most people don't even know that they should be asking for it, or which they, again, it's crazy. Or they asked once five years ago and they got told no and they think that there's gonna be no forever. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I get asked a lot, like how do we get access to so much data? Uh, I'm saying this for the audience, you already know, but uh, we have a data relationship with every single sponsor we work with. We won't work with a sponsor unless they share information with us. And we work with most of the sponsors you would expect across YouTube. And the, one of the questions I get asked most is like, how do you get them to tell you that stuff? And the answer is, we asked. <laughs> we, told them, yep. we told them that we needed that data to understand how we, well we were performing and to help us tune performance over the course of a longer relationship because we didn't want to just cash in once and then move on. They love that and they give us the data and then we adjust the pricing as we promise from spot to spot uh, based on how well performance is going so that we have an incentive to increase performance so that the creators get paid more money and they have an incentive to keep sharing data so that we keep increasing performance. In many cases, we end up being the best thing that ever happened to the influencer marketing person at any given company because we're doing half the work for them. More than once this has happened. Like how <laughs> it's, it's not a hard concept that uh, if you... If you want to make a friend with somebody, if you want to make friends with somebody, make them look good in front of their boss. Mm -hmm. That's all we do. Make, mm -hmm. the, make the marketing people look good in front of their boss. And it makes sure that all the spend that you're doing actually works. It's and, like, and, okay. Uh, and de-risk the first one. Yep. And to be fair, it can be really tricky for a smaller creator or a solo creator to go in and have that conversation because you don't really have leverage. Mm -hmm. And if you stumble or if something goes wrong, it's gonna. It'll take more relationship building to get to, to balance that out. One thing we do have is the leverage of, of scale. Um, so over the course of all of the portfolio of creators, 
the chances of us being um, on target is, is much greater. But I, I think fundamentally, just knowing that you can go in and ask for these things is the part that most people underestimate. The counterintuitive thing about that is that it's the pathway that gets you the most money over time, but not immediately. Having have we had this conversation with a lot of people who are like, oh, but if we could be asking for three times as much and we will get it on the first go, why shouldn't we be doing that every time? And it's like, because you're not running a business for a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would really like to be in business five years from now. Exactly. Like, do it's... One thing that I think is inherent to a lot of YouTube businesses, a lot of people running their channel as businesses, is that the thing moves so quickly that there's always this existential dread that is going to go away. The amount of people that I have talked to who are like, oh, I know this is a phase of my life, so I'm just trying to get the most of it before it's over. And then a lot of those people, that was a, a conversation seven years ago, and they're still running channels. And it's like, okay, so... It's, there's a, there's a, I don't know, a lack of long-term thought that I do not know if it's inherent to just how quickly things move or inherent to the fact that a lot of people, myself included, jumped into this with no previous business knowledge. So we didn't have like a point of reference to grab it from. You know what it reminds me of? When I was, um, I think in my 20s, my first band, uh, I wasn't a great singer. And you could argue now whether I am or not, but I'm certainly better. But at the time, I wouldn't, uh, I refused to do lessons. It was like, I'm just going to go out and, and do it. And it was like kind of half-hearted. And I was really awkward about it. As somebody mm. who was trying to be the lead singer, I was like, there was no charm or charisma in what I was doing. And if I'm being honest about why that is, it's like, if I, I felt like if I really tried and failed, then I'm a failure. If I don't really try and I half-ass it and fail, well, I could have done better, mm -hmm. right? I think there's an element there of creators thinking, well, if I don't take this seriously and I treat this as like a phase of my life and I don't really go for it, then when the channel collapses and I have to get a real job, it's not a failure. It's just that phase of my life was over. Some people don't want this to be, some people aren't in the empire business. Some people want to just do a thing and build skills, which cool. Um, I don't know what, if you don't have a plan for what happens next, mm -hmm. then you just don't have a plan. Um, but like on, on my spectrum, I think of it in terms of like, there are people who want to build uh, a lifestyle business mm -hmm. where they do the work they want to do, it pays their bills and they get to live the life that they want to live. And it's not about building wealth, it's just about sustainability. And then there are people who want to build empires, people who want to build something that outlives them and just continues to grow. Uh, and there's no wrong answer on that spectrum, but you know, it is important to be honest with yourself. If you think that this is like a hobby, mm -hmm. then yeah, no, don't be surprised if you're not pulling in big numbers. Or even if it's not even a hobby, but something that of a creative outlet, there's a business side to it that affects the creative side of it. Because, I have had a, a couple of talks in VidCon about topics like this. And it's easy to get trapped into the weeds of, oh, what are the business decisions that you should be making in order to have a successful channel? And often forget that we're all working with the assumption that step one is already fulfilled. And step one is you know making good videos, videos that people actually want to watch. Mm -hmm. It's important not to lose sight that many times having a business strategy that is coherent and sustainable is part 
of the pathway are just making better videos. Like something that I respect a lot of, uh, on a lot of people uh, in Nebula and that I have tried to emulate is that having a strategy that leads to a better business growth just gives you more money to throw back into the channel to make even bigger and more impressive stuff, mm -hmm. to push the boundaries of what you're making. The One of the things that has allowed me to do, maybe this requires a little bit of context, but for, for people at home, I have gone through phases of the work that I do. And I used to run, uh, my channel used to be very different to what it is today. And I decided midway that I was emotionally tired of it and I'm for a billion reasons, and decided to do something that I was more emotionally and creatively engaged with. And more importantly, more expensive. I wanted to do videos that were more high-end, had more stuff, were more... More storytelling. Had not just more well, storytelling, but better storytelling and better production value and just were closer to something that made me feel creatively fulfilled. The reason why I was able to do that and do it to a level where I'm starting to feel this level of emotional satisfaction with my work is because when I went through the process of taking that decision, with the hindsight of years of having done other stuff in YouTube, not all of it successful, is that one of the many questions wasn't just, okay, how do I make a good set of storytelling? What's a good set of production that allow me to do this quality of video? In the back of my mind, I was also thinking, okay, how do I fund it? How do I build a business model around this that allows it to actually function in a way that I can keep throwing money at it? Yeah, yeah, and I think this is something where, when I look at the success stories in this space, uh, within our genres, uh, mm -hmm. like our friend group, uh, Wendy, Sam from Wendover, might be like the, the, the reigning champion king of this, where like his focus is on how do I make the best thing leverage that into getting to make another best thing. Mm -hmm. Going from Wendover to half as interesting to jet lag and the Extremity series. Uh, and he's not afraid to tear down a thing that isn't going well. He's tried podcasting a couple of times and you know middling success or it was a great show but it took so much in the way of resources to do it that it wasn't worth continuing to do it because it took away from other things that he could be doing. And uh, I don't know if I'd say he's in the empire business, probably, mm. but I think it's more more relevant in the conversation that, that he's somebody who understands that this is not about how do I become the biggest YouTuber? It's about how do I build things that are genuinely great but sustainably so? Exactly. And then reacting to market forces, economic realities uh, throughout the process. Yes. I think we have a lot of really good examples of that. A, a big inspiration of a lot of things I'm doing is Brian from Real Engineering. Another great example. Because even, even earlier videos were already at a level of quality that compared to a lot of, a lot of other people in the genre was very high. And then you see his trajectory and what he's doing with 3D animations and the quality of the stuff that is being put out by real engineering at this point. Trajectory? Trajectory. Okay. I heard tragic story and I'm no, thinking no, 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 if no. somebody's listening and hears this, I want to make sure. I'm not trying to pick on you, but I want to make sure <laughs> that we... We're, we're saying the right thing. Yeah, his trajectory. His trajectory. The tra his tragic story will come later. His tragic story, yeah, that's, that, that stays within us. <laughs> <laughs> um, just the quality of the stuff that, that him and his team is yeah, putting out this day. He's leaned way Incredible. in. Incredible. Way in on quality. And what's crazy is, um, and I think this is something that, that the Wendover team is starting to do, but uh, where, where Brian, I think, got out in front was uh, finding Stephanie. 
and giving her, uh, uh, like, they, they developed Real Science and she's running that show. And I, th I think I think now she is the, uh, by subscribers, which, you know, whatever, um, Real Science is the largest female-led channel we represent, mm -hmm. which that's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it came out of uh, Brian built a system that could, like, foster talent like that. And then good things happen, good things happen. I think Brian's been really good at spotting people who, uh, if he gave them some resources, they could go build something. And so his version of uh, empire building is to build out a great team and then give them more responsibility, delegate, let them build with him. And I think, I think uh, Wendy's team is getting really good at this too. By the time this one's out, yeah, uh, the, the jet lag episode will have been out. Uh, the, if you're listening to this or watching this and you haven't uh, listened to or seen the jet lag episode of, of this show, I recommend that one. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but I think they're going a similar direction where Ben and Adam are um, part of that core team. They're not being spun off or something, but they are treated as like a creative force alongside Sam. Mm -hmm. And I think Brian treats his people, his people, his, his team as creative forces alongside him. There's a myth that in order for it to be authentically YouTube, it has to be kind of shitty. Too much produ production value looks corporate. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I think that style matters. Production value can be anything. Mm -hmm. You can have a great show shot on a GoPro, or you can have a great show shot on cinema cameras. It's all about how you move the camera and what you're doing on the camera. Um, but that that same uh, ideology, I think, that same philosophy, leads people to think that if you see my team, you no longer respect that it's like, a small thing. You won't want to support me on Patreon or you won't want to. And so people don't thank their teams. Mm -hmm. They don't elevate their teams. They want to hide that away. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen, the bigger success stories in this space are the people who like celebrate and elevate. Yes. Like build those people up. Yes. And it works because there's a business model beside of it. Like the on one side of the spectrum, you have people who optimize purely by business model. And you look at a cert certain channel, so you look at it, and it's like, God, this is just trying to make as much money as possible and do videos as cheaply as possible. But then you see this other side who like understand the business model, understand how to build something sustainable, and then use it to elevate the art form as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think we, that, that's where this economy should be going. That, that's where this space should be going, which is, uh, that's what gets me, uh, up in the morning every day. Mm -hmm. It's or, the thought of supporting and lead and helping get things moving in that direction. What do you think of the creators who are like big ostentatious YouTubers um, who are trying to elevate into other things? So like um, by way of example, on one end, you've got somebody like um, Abby, Abigail Thorne, who is trying to use her uh, YouTube uh, cachet to find opportunities to do other things, um, namely acting, um, not by giving up on YouTube, but by leaning more into the power of the YouTube audience. YouTube isn't a bridge to what she wants. It's a ladder. Is that the right way to say it? <laughs> I don't know if that analogy holds up. Uh, My point is that this isn't intended to be like a thing that she leaves behind. This, yes. isn't, this isn't her fairy uh, F-E-E-F-E-R-Y, uh, uh, leading her across the river to where she wants to be. This is this is the thing uh, that that empowers her to go and do that next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing. I think Jesse Gender similar um, scenario, Patrick Willems similar scenario. 
Uh, but then there are also other creators. Uh, Mark Rober has, the, I think, a Discovery Channel show now. Uh, Lily Singh with the late night talk show that was canceled. Like there seems to be, uh, there are creators, and who knows what Mark's going to do, but there are creators who who see going and doing a TV show as being better than. And yep. even even the way I said that, like he's doing the Discovery Channel show now, like that sounds impressive, right? That sound. Who knows what he's getting paid for that? Oh, who yeah. knows what the deal? Who knows who owns that show? Who knows how long it'll be before it's canceled? I don't know. But what do you think of this? I think when the influencer game, I am not a super friend of that word, but it sort of describes many things. When the influencer game was very early, YouTube was seen as a stepping stone to do something more mainstream. But as time goes on, the more and more people have proven what this medium can do. And as the medium is elevated, it becomes a little bit odd when people are using it as a way to get into something else because often the something else is not as cool. Think mm -hmm. about it this way. <laughs> if, if Patrick H. Willems had gone and done a movie through a traditional studio, I don't think the movie would have been as good as Night of the Coconut was. Certainly not if he was trying to make Night of the Coconut. <laughs> no, I don't think he would have been <laughs> able to do it in the first place. Because <laughs> they would have been like, you want to do a season finale to a YouTube channel? What? I think the future of we are, where we're heading is building better stuff on top of what we already do, rather than trying to move it to what a traditional media style was doing. It doesn't make sense for this to be just a funnel for that. It just doesn't. A lot of what the old media has is just old inertia and a certain area of prestige, which grants it, I don't know, a higher budget simply out of the idea that it's more prestigious. Well, um, I think there is a prestige on TV that we don't have. No, it is, but I think that's just historical inertia. Uh, I think it's cultural inertia. I, I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm yes-anding. I think it's cultural inertia where the issue is that the way audiences regard television and the seriousness of television versus how they regard YouTube could not be more different. Yes. Uh, the, the issue, and I think I've said this before, so you know, we'll call this a, a running bit for the listeners. The number of people who watched like the whatever episode of Mr. Beast, more people saw that, more people I think watch his videos on average, or he gets more views on average than the number of uh, people, air quotes people, who watch the Super Bowl. Yeah, but it's- But uh... that's, a, that's kind of a bullshit fucky number. Like mm -hmm. the reality is nobody, the entirety of the country does not get together once a year for a major event of watching a Mr. Beast video. And we can say 80 million, 90 million people watched the, the Super Bowl, but what we're not accounting for in that is that's households. Nobody's, the entire country isn't having uh, Mr. Beast video watch parties where everyone gets together in, in a house or at a bar or at a whatever to watch this thing happen. That is a cultural event, a cultural phenomenon. No wonder it costs more to advertise on the Super Bowl than it does on a Mr. Beast video. And that is nothing against Jimmy. But it does mean that while he might get more views overall, 
-hmm. It doesn't make him more valuable. There's a lot of breadth there, but the depth is very different. Value and prestige is not like a mathematical thing. It's not like who gets more views and who's on top is more prestigious. It's, 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 a, it's a human factor. It's, it's branding. It's why, whatever people feel is more prestigious. And that, that, doesn't, that, that comes from a lot of history and many years of decisions taken by many people. Also, like the time that we spend consuming media mm -hmm. is so different. I was at the gym this morning and there's a woman on the treadmill uh, watching some video on her phone with the, the little speaker at full volume, which drove me insane. And uh, behind me, there's a guy uh, doing curls with barbells. And in between, he would open up his phone and watch TikTok videos. I don't think these people are like emotionally attached to what they're watching. They're just filling space. Yeah. How many of the views you're getting are people just filling that space, filling a moment, filling a silence up with something? Is there any, is this, how much of this media consumption is empty calories? And that's not like a, a, a value judgment on people, although, you know what, fuck it, sure, it is a value judgment on people, but also a value judgment on creators. Are you making something that has substance and, and nutrition, or are you just putting more empty calories into the world? Are you making the kind of videos that people are just w watching on the side while they're doing their dishes or mm -hmm. while they're exercising or videos that people are like stopping what they're doing to watch? Yeah, yeah. And this so, is something that I think a lot very often because I have been really trying really hard to do the, the ones that people will stop and actually pay attention to. And I, I measure, I try to keep the, uh, an eye on this on how many of our friends uh, what, what types of, of videos they make. Oh, I, I have a great example. Um, since we were talking about Sam, Wendover, Wendover Productions is a channel I absolutely like, I absolutely love, but those you, you can watch a lot of those videos sort of in the periphery. We're Almost about like, to listen. find out if he watches this show. That's fine. <laughs> because if he does, he's gonna... Yeah. No, but like a, a lot of, I think you will agree with me that a lot of Wendover videos, you could almost listen like a podcast. Oh yeah, I think uh, many of our shows, you could. I wouldn't never watch Jetlag as a podcast. Like oh, no, no, Jetlag no, no. is the sort of show that you will like stop and watch it. Yes, but Jetlag's unique in the pantheon of Nebula creators. Yes, I, I, but I say that will depend. Like getting you could it podcast back... real engineering. You could podcast legal legal. You could podcast a Lindsay Ellis video. You could yes. podcast a certainly. You could podcast a Cinema Wins video because I do it like every night. I fall asleep to that shit. Yes, but for example, getting back into the trajectory that Brian and Real Engineering has had. The tragic story of Brian and Real Engineering. The, tra the, the trajectory, yes. <laughs> uh, the more they invest on those 3D animations and a lot of the things they're doing, the less I'm watching those videos as a podcast and the more when they drop, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop doing everything just to watch them. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's some real meat there. Exactly, there's, there's, there's a care there. You're rewarded for watching. Exactly. Actually, one of my favorite examples of the, the podcastable YouTube shows, when uh, Cinema Wins actually might be a bad example because he's talking about things that are happening on the screen. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were to go, another one of my favorite channels to fall asleep to, uh, Captain Midnight. I've seen every Captain Midnight video probably three or four times. Wow. Um, I'll watch once because I enjoy it. And then like when I'm going to sleep and I just want to put something on and like set the timer to turn it off after an hour after I'm, I'm passed out, uh, it's like always Cinema Wins, Captain Midnight, All Shift X, something like that. But even then, uh, All Shift X, one of my favorite creators, uh, 
you don't really need to see what's happening on the screen. It's all supportive of, I think this is true of like video essays in general. The difference between a video essay and, and an explainer video, typically, um, well, part of it is fact versus opinion. But I think also part of it is with a, with a video essay, you're sort of, you're sharing opinions with uh, visuals to support what you're saying. Uh, in an explainer, the two should work together a little yes. bit differently. There should be a balance there. How do you think about what you make? One of the reasons why we started in introducing more um, proper scenes, uh, scenes where there are characters talking to each other and voice actors doing the voices for each character, is to have more moments in the video that will like make people stop and watch. And like I, I have seen with literally a talk within my team very often about does this scene using too much like historical footage or too much like Getty stock footage or something or do we actually need to put like a 3D animation or a scene there or something that is visually interesting to get people not to you know put them in a second tab while they mm. do something else. Mm -hmm. On one side I think this is something that in the specific space of internet video we think about it more critically that other types of media do because there's already an incentive of watching it, the thing on the periphery versus mm. Netflix, I guess. Um, oh, because there's like a list of here's a bunch of other things you could yeah. be watching right now if this is boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's sort of meant, it's designed in a way that you have to optimize to be more engaging. But also it, it leads to this very interesting, this interesting process of different creators trying to solve for that problem, including myself of how to get people to pay more attention to it. And some people uh, some people do it by chalk. Some people do it by having something that is more visually engaging. And some people in Tech Talk, I guess, do it by putting two things at once, which apparently is an entire new meta of things that people do to try to increase retention. So Yeah, like having a TV show playing down here while you're talking up here. That is yeah. such a bananas idea to me. But it's solving for exactly the same problem, what, and what, that's the insane thing. But it's a tacit admission of failure. Oh, I'm absolutely not it is. I'm not interesting enough to hold your attention. So here's a Family Guy episode while I talk. <laughs> what? Can you imagine? Imagine like you're on a date, <laughs> and the person you're on a date with just holds up a phone next to their head, playing video of something else while they tell you a story, just in case you like you, you start to off. check out, right? Yeah. You're like, uh huh. It's an admission of defeat, but an admission that the problem exists, that you're sort of competing for attention. Mm. Um, so it's, I guess, a shortcut to try to fix it, but the, the, when, you try to, when you try to create content that is genuinely engaging, um, it leads to very interesting things. It's very easy to lose perspective where we're into the weeds of it every day. But when you look at what many people were producing three years ago versus the things that they're producing now, like it's insane. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also like, um, not to go full Thomas Frank here, but like there's a, a, a funnel to things if you, if you play this right, where you don't, like whatever you make on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, that is the primary, uh, that, that is marketing. Mm -hmm. That is how the audience is brought to you. And you can leverage that, have the algorithm bring you more views. You may not see success going with broad storytelling or deep storytelling. Uh, it might just be like exciting storytelling. It's all about retention. But maybe that's not the way you want to tell a story. And maybe 
10% of your audience would love it if you would tell a story with a little bit more pacing and some room to mm -hmm. breathe. But the algorithm isn't going to reward that with more views necessarily. Because that's not how a, the largest audience would react well. Yeah, exactly. So what you do is you take the people, you, you put out the mass market version of a thing, the fast food, you get everybody, and then there's some subset of that who would want the deeper experience. You can create that and sell it to them. Once again, views are not your sales. Right, right. That, that is, views are marketing. Views are marketing. Views are marketing. You can bring that audience in and you can upsell them on other things. You can sell them courses. You can sell them, I don't, I don't want to push people to sell a bunch of bullshit. Like, don't sell things if they're not actually going to be good. Don't just exploit your audience. But if your audience is excited about what you do, you can make things for that audience that do have a price tag on them and they will want to, I don't know if, you, if I want to say like they want to support you. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but if they trust you and they're excited about you doing something and they think that you can do it well, they'll put down money. Yeah. And this is, this is like the, the premise that Nebula is built on, that if the audience wants a deeper version of whatever the thing is, we can build that and it can be monetarily sustainable, economically sustainable. Uh, Modern Conflicts, a show that uh, is paced a little bit differently, but it's mostly like subject matter that would get demonetized. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we move it over here and it wouldn't be sustainable on YouTube, but it is on Nebula because there's enough of the audience who wants to come over and pay for that. Yeah, yeah, I think the simplest way to say it is views are, views are marketing. Views are marketing. If you, if you upload Night of the Coconut to YouTube, I don't think it will do very well in views. I honestly think that Night of the Coconut will get fewer views on YouTube than it's gotten on Nebula. Absolutely agree with you. Because it's not, it's not that type of product, but it's, it shouldn't be. Well, Patrick is one of these creators. He's like, he's the creator's creator. Mm -hmm. there, there's a handful of these people that just like, they don't have giant audience appeal, but anyone who makes stuff like within a space looks at that person and says, I want to do what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Patrick doesn't make YouTube videos. He makes movies about movies. That's incredible. Yes. And like, I feel fortunate to even be near that because it's just so creatively interesting and fulfilling. Uh, he's one of these creators though, where he's got like a couple hundred thousand subscribers and he gets a couple hundred thousand views per video. Like the people who subscribe to his channel, they watch every video largely. It's not like he's got 10 million subs and he's only getting 200,000 views. It's pretty one-to-one, -one. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least it was the last time I looked. My, whatever the delta is there, my point is that he doesn't need a giant audience to survive. He doesn't need that breadth. It's the depth that makes what he does possible. So taking that depth and pulling uh, like the, the, the most engaged of his fan base over to Nebula to watch this movie that he made that he wouldn't have been able to make necessarily without Nebula, uh, so much of the audience comes over. It's, it's like shockingly high percentage of people. That's a shockingly large number of people who signed up because of him. I was at a thing and there were, there were some YouTubers who were very uh, loudly celebrating hitting a million subscribers. Mm -hmm. uh, in the main room of the event, they were celebrating hitting a million subscribers. And uh, it was happening during my talk in the other room. 
And I'm not I'm not salty that like they pulled people away. Like if you want to be in my thing, great. If not, don't. And also they're recorded, so go where the party is, I suppose. Um, but I did think it was interesting that like there's a room full of people right now partying and celebrating a cumulative statistic of some people hit a million subscribers. A cumulative stat, mm-hmm. one million subscribers. It's like celebrating the millionth dollar you've ever earned. Mm-hmm. Do you still have those dollars? No. What are we celebrating? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm up on a stage talking to like you know 50, 60 people, and uh, like I've got 650,000 subscribers. The difference is that mine all pay to be here, <laughs> and so yep. you have to ask yourself. And then like this isn't a there's no brinksmanship here. There's no there's no competition. Um, and I'm not salty about that. I just think that it's interesting the things that we choose to celebrate, the things that as creators within the creator economy, the stories we tell ourselves about what's valuable and what isn't. It's it's uh, it's nuts to me that so little emphasis is put on the actual value building of business versus like what what good is a cumulative statistic? Who cares? Once again, we we are all a series of businesses where we have. No idea where our marketing budget is. And we don't have, as creators know, what our sales are. And we celebrate the weird marketing statistic that was brought by an algorithm. It's, it, 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 as a business, it's so weird. It doesn't make sense. So it's only, and I think... It's like a real estate agent celebrating one million leads. Exactly. It's like, yeah. you didn't convert those to sales. What are you talking about? What are, what are you partying for? Exactly. Um, but the, and I think... This is why we have seen, not just us, but more of a push towards creator-made projects and mm-hmm. creator-made businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you think as your views as marketing, not sales, as marketing, and it's like, okay, so what are those leading to sales? Well, sales of sponsored products, and you get paid part of that. But it's like, okay, so the whole business is you're, you're driving sales from other people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little bit sketch, it's, it's weird. Yeah, like um, another, I, I don't want to name creators too much on, on this thing. I'm, I'm really, not, really pushing your buttons. Yeah, well, I just, I'm, I'm not here to shit on people. Um, but there's, there's a creator who built a coffee company. And the, the actual coffee company, he doesn't own the entirety of. He owns a part of it. I guess I can just say he's talked about all of this. I think he made a whole video. Graham Stephan, he made a whole video about this thing. Uh, how much does it make? Well, he made a video about that. We talked to the company that he's partnered with about doing something sort of similar with our creators, and we walked away from it because the company would have taken too much of the money. Yeah, that's and if that's true like... for us, like we want to build something, not just put our name on the bag and get half the money. When people ask about, okay, how how do you pull it off with the Nebula stuff? How do you make the streaming service How in, in a space that is so difficult? And it's always like the same answer because there's a level of ownership among creators. Mm-hmm. There's a level of creator-made product to we it. We all put our name on it, yeah. Exactly. That is not not a joke. In the, If we all can collectively push a thing that we all own a little bit of, that is that means sales meaningful. That means that we're all sort of counting how many people we have brought to Nebula because those are our real sales. And we know those. And each creator knows them, their sales then. 
Yes, we all have a full accounting exactly. of our stats. We know how many customers we brought in. We know how many of them are still here. Uh, we know who the the, the winners are um, and to what degree. When you look at Nebula, not as a whole, just as a, as a business, but also every creator in Nebula as its own small business, these are small businesses that know their sales because they know the amount of people that they bring to Nebula. Right. I've always compared YouTube, uh, building a channel on YouTube as a business is a lot like opening a store at a mall. Yeah. And uh, maybe you get lucky and you're randomly given a spot next to the food court and there's tons of foot traffic and you just get lots and lots of customers and lots and lots of sales and you think it was all you. And you don't account for how much of that was the mall doing you a big favor by putting you in that spot or just the pure luck of that was the spot that was open and you happened to get it. And then... One day, you might come in and find that they've moved you to the other end of the mall, to the empty husk of what used to be a JCPenney. And uh, suddenly, all your traffic is gone, and you're on Twitter yelling about how the system is screwing you and the algorithm is evil, um, not thinking about how, like, no, the algorithm just is no longer giving you the free traffic that you were getting before. Where Nebula was all about, let's build our own mall. I think it's even worse than that. Because if YouTube is a mall, then you are a store within the mall, and then some people come and buy things. But all the purchases have to go through YouTube. I'm sort of making an analogy for AdSense. And at the end <laughs> of the- They own the billing relationship. Yeah the, the, yeah, the 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 mall at the end goes and goes like, oh, here's your cut. Here's the amount of money. Okay, what does this correspond to? <laughs> People just come in and they stand in your store for a while and they might see ads that the mall is playing. Exactly. There you go. And you might have a really good store or you might just be the thing next to the food court and that's where people happen to want to stand. Yeah. It's really hard to know. But yeah, you don't own the billing relationship. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I feel like, though, in, in all of this, we're not really arguing. <laughs> oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. It's funny, the, the construct of the show, it wasn't really supposed to be like, let's fight about things. That's more of like a, it's a dry conceit. It's like a, it's an invitation, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's, there doesn't need to be anything that's off limits, and we don't need to be here to kiss each other's asses. I think that you and I, with the role that you have on the talent team, it's more that just like, you've seen enough shit now. <laughs> yep. Like, you, you kind of know. Yep. Um, so there's like, maybe we're just commiserating at this point. Yeah, as I said, it has been eye-opening, and that grants a lot of perspective and a lot of... Um, when, when you are a creator and everyone around you is a creator, it's very easy to make assumptions about, oh, this is how the industry works. That don't mm-hmm. you don't realize how weird it is until you look at it from the outside. It's like, huh? Yeah. And the it's tribal the, knowledge. The tribal yeah. knowledge is uh, it's terrifying. If I'm being honest, it, it makes me really worried that there's a generation of incredibly smart, incredibly talented people who are going to be distracted by their own inexperience over time there is a kind of failure that looks so much like success that we all just walk off the cliff not realizing that we're doing it. There's the, the failure is the delta between where you are and your potential. You could be Ooh. doing better. You could be getting 10x the views, 10x the money, 10x the, the audience engagement, whatever it is. If you're putting things out there and you're getting 300,000 views per video, um, and you do that consistently for years, and then I come in and make a suggestion, you should change this. 
what do most people say? What do most creators say in that situation? They get a little bit defensive and they say, well, I get this many views, so I'm not going to change it. And it's like, for fuck's sake, you could be getting 3 million views if you just made this change, if you just made this tweak, if you, if you got into working on your thumbnails more. Uh, we had a conversation with a creator recently, I won't name, uh, where it, it's like, yeah, we have a whole team of people. Like there's a whole Slack channel where we talk about thumbnails and how to improve things. And the response was like, oh, I don't really do chat room stuff. And it's like, do you want to save your business? <laughs> Maybe spend 20 minutes in a chat room talking yeah. to people about thumbnails. Like this is worth it, right? Like, uh, am, I, am I crazy? Yeah, or, yeah or, or do we want to make the thing better? And it's not that that person is bad or um, they're a bad creator, they do bad work. I would say very much the opposite. It's just that not everyone prioritizes um, the difference in trajectory. Not everyone wants to think through, if I want something to change, I need to change something. They want to keep doing what they've always done and just have the system keep rewarding them the way that the system rewarded them two years ago. Which is a weird thing because everyone, including myself, again, this is, these are mistakes that I have made. It's, it's so easy to forget that there's a human element b behind the whole system in the sense that how often have we heard, have I heard, have I said in the past, oh, I'm just doing the same thing I've always done. Why am I making half <laughs> the amount of views that I used to make? Because the world like, moved on. Have you considered that people got bored? <laughs> like imagine uh, every year Taylor Swift just puts the same record out again. That's actually kind of funny because now she's re-releasing <laughs> yeah. records. But um, like, pick your favorite artist. If they, if all they ever did was just release the same song over and over again, you'd move on. Like, yeah, the best artists will grow in a way that their audience is excited about. And then there's a you know symbiosis that kind of happens. But eventually, people will tune out or get bored. Um, in most cases, you look at uh, what is regarded as the the greatest band of all time, the Beatles. You listen to their first record. You listen to their last record. How the fuck do you get from here to there? And along the way, what did they do? They like reinvented the artist side of, of music business. Mm -hmm. They fought many battles on the business side. And oh, by the way, they, working with George Martin, uh, invented all of modern recording technology. Yeah, they, they had to grow because in any creative industry, it's very easy to forget that just people get bored if you do the same thing over and over. Like, it, when you do YouTube for very long, it's surprisingly easy to lose perspective of how things look like a, from a viewer. How often have we had conversations where people are like, okay, what are the best rules for like a thumbnail, for a title, and they want like a, a set of instructions, a formula to follow. And then they, they do something that when you look at it from a viewer's perspective, it's like, have you considered like what a viewer, like this makes no sense, like how do you parse this? Um, because you do the, create, the, the the creator side of it so much that then you're not able to put yourself in the headspace of just a viewer and how that is going to be perceived. So a lot of interpolating this into the whole strategic conversation, you, as a creator, you, one can get frustrated of, oh, I'm doing the same thing, but I'm getting less views, what is going on? But also, how many people are you personally watching that are still doing the same stuff five years from when they started? Yeah, there's plenty of shows with, with formats that I loved and I'd watch every video, and now I don't. Not because they got worse, but just like, I saw so much of it. How many of those do I need to see? 
or you find uh, found another creator that does that, but with a little bit of something different that yeah. is interesting, and you end up watching more of that? As our friend Todd Algorithm likes to say, it may not be that you're getting worse. It could just be that the pool of, of competition out there is ever expanding. Yeah. And the viewership is not necessarily. So you're competing every day with more and more people who are uploading videos to YouTube. So uh, in terms of like the fundamental problem is in the tech industry, there's the, like there's a lot of talk and there always has been about like innovation, innovation, mm -hmm. innovation. And with content creators, influencers, whatever you want to call us, it's not necessarily there's a lot of parallels that that even creators will will find like people want to become um, more entrepreneurial or they think that because they've built a successful business they must understand business and now they want to go out and start businesses which is <laughs> sometimes hilarious um, and it, it is a good idea but it only really works if you understand what made your business successful to begin with that notion of innovation mm -hmm. like moving the needle uh, advancing the state of the art, doing something cool, something interesting. Some people do this uh, inherently. Some people do this intuitively. But if you don't keep doing it, if you don't keep pushing the envelope, then you find yourself, you know, stuck in a, a holding pattern, and you stop innovating, and eventually you die. That's how it is in every other business. Of course, that's how it would be when you're making uh, video content in a sea of a million other. Uh, teenagers who want your job, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you balance the creative innovation with the need, the 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 absolute existential need to uh, to to move business forward, like the the art versus the commerce, right? You balance them both, and and you think about it very carefully. Like the, I was at this position in a year and a half ago where again, like views are down, things are down, interest is down, and it's like, okay, so what's, what's the next thing here to do? And thinking about what is the credit fulfilling thing, but also what is the business that you can build around it, what's the answer? And I think it's something that doesn't happen very often and something that needs to happen more often. You, you're not going to go and be able to uh, do out there and build the craziest stuff that you can think of, and you also shouldn't just be thinking of it as a pure business. There's something in the middle of these two things that you need to be able to thread. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I do get frustrated with the creators who just treat this purely as business and they put no art into it. Exactly. The people who, um, uh, you know, the kinds of creators who end up getting sued for a billion dollars <laughs> because they were thinking so heavily about what is the best way for me to make money? And they weren't really thinking through what is the best way for me to treat my customers or what is the most interesting story I could tell. It's, it's, uh, it's purely about the cash. Yes, exactly. But also if you, if you go purely for the art, it's very easy to sort of back yourself into a quarter and yeah. then find that what you're doing is not sustainable. Yeah, and then you're not making enough money to keep doing it and you become more and more frustrated. And we've seen there are people when it becomes clear that like their sponsor rate isn't sustainable. We've had creators leave because the sponsors didn't want to pay their rates and they say, well, then I'm not doing this. And you kind of have to laugh like, well, now's not the moment to walk away from a support structure. <laughs> now yeah. is the time to lean into that support structure and like find other ways of doing this. Time will tell how that story plays out for them. Uh, maybe, maybe well, maybe not well, but 
it is not a result of a an artistic failing necessarily. It is more that they uh, they they're they're cranking out the same song. They're putting out the same. It's like, well, this this was a hit single twenty years ago. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm just going to keep releasing stuff that sounds exactly like that. Why does why don't they play it on the radio anymore? Yeah, if I used to make this amount of money, why can I just keep charging that forever? We have no idea what the sales actually are. Yeah, there's a reason that shows end. There's yeah. a, there's a reason that TV shows don't go on for a hundred years. There's of course exceptions to this: The Simpsons and daytime talk shows and soap operas. But the the those are um, uh, largely empty calories. Yeah, those are largely junk food. And let's look at the ratings for the first eight seasons of The Simpsons versus the most recent yep. seasons of The Simpsons. Does anybody really care, or is it like just enough and institutional and familiar enough? There's enough nostalgia that the brand can keep going. It's more business model than it's creative at this point. So it's like, where's the balance? And also, let's let's. Uh, I used the example of the Beatles earlier. Every Beatles song ever, everything they ever recorded while the band was together, they've really shit sense. But their entire run as a band, as a single unit. From their first record or the last record, mm -hmm. seven years. It was only seven years. Seven years. Everything they did to advance the state of music, the state of rock and roll, this, the state of recording technology, the state of music business, they did in seven years, and then they broke up and moved on to other things. Wow. Yeah. So, like, if you think that you're still going to be a YouTuber in seven years, you might be right. Or, or not. Mm-hmm. So what might not be obvious in this conversation is that there are not a lot of people in the world who do this, like the managing of creators and sponsor bookings and this stuff, the, the talent management side of it. Um, and of the handful of agencies out there, um, there, like we have a particular way of doing things. And I, I don't want to make a, a too much comment here on right or wrong, although I think the way we do it <laughs> is right, uh, or we wouldn't be doing it this way. But uh, the, the, the philosophy, mm -hmm. I don't know anyone in this space who approaches it with this philosophy. And that philosophy, that, that code means everything to me. I don't want to do any of this if it's not for this reason or, or um, if we're not maintaining the ethics and the, um, like the creator forward uh, If it's ideology. not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly a way to exploit creators sustainably. <laughs> uh, years ago in the software industry, uh, at the beginning of, because my, my old career was uh, app development. Mm. I was a, a designer, a UI UX designer for iOS apps. But it was like the very, I got started at the very beginning of like when there were first iPhone apps in like 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And I was early enough into it that I didn't have to work that hard to build my name. The talent came later. Uh, it was a lot of talking, right? Um, but my first iOS company that I started with, with my friend and neighbor, uh, we got acquired. And the conversation for years was about the difference between product companies and consulting companies. So you get product companies like they make an app and then people can buy and download that app. And there was like consulting and development companies that were you would hire us and we would make your app. And most of the money, like the most, uh, the safest money was in making apps for other people. And uh, my boss, the guy who acquired our, our first company, uh, he talked about in a gold rush, you can make more money as a gold miner 
potentially. But the safest way to make lots of money sustainably is by being in the picks and shovels business. And so uh, when I was looking at YouTube as a thing and what do I want to do here and, and realizing that there's a business in like the, the, the sort of back office side of things, it's like yeah, we're, we're a picks and shovels business. There's not a lot of people in the picks and shovels business who see it that way. They see it as their own either gateway to fame or a way to exploit people. But what might not be obvious to the audience with, with you being like the person running that talent team now, um, I'm fairly hands off with this stuff. It was so incredibly hard finding somebody who got this at all. They could like take the wheel and because not fuck it up. It's such a unique a new industry that, how do you write a job description for this? I don't know how to write a job description. Uh, we, for yeah, this. we struggle to hire people because uh, what do we need a person to do? What do you even call that job? Exactly. It, yeah. It's not sales. Like, well, I don't want somebody to come in and do this on commission. Yeah. That's not a way that this should work. So what do we, uh, yeah, I don't know. Welcome to building a new industry where none of the freaking rules are rhythm. Yeah, because it's like part marketing company, part talent agency, and now we're a streaming video service and we do all this other shit. Yeah, I think that it takes somebody who's kind of been through the shit of it to, oh, yeah. to, to be able to do that job. And the fact that you've been a creator for so long and that you've, you've been through rounds of second guessing your work or, or not knowing where your business was going I think you need that. I think you need that scar tissue. There's a lot of conversations that I get to with uh, other creators where I constantly say, like, I think this or that decision you're making could go wrong because I made that decision. This is how <laughs> it went for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's a Steve Jobs. Uh, there's a video on YouTube of Steve Jobs talking about consultants, and what he mm. says is that like you have to like unless you've you've been there and built up that scar tissue like you just don't really know yeah you can't really contribute because like your your uh perception is so two-dimensional mm -hmm. so like i don't think you could hire a consultant to come in and handle sponsor bookings like this you have to be have you have to have been a creator for enough time to know how badly it sucks mm -hmm. in its worst moments and how great it can be in its best moments you have to have been a creator who looks at things and it's like, oh, this is obviously the decision that makes the most money. And then take that decision and see the consequences of some decisions and be like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have been the creator who raised the fist at the algorithm and be like, why are my views lower when I'm doing the same thing? Like, you, you, you have to have a little bit of gray hair in, mm -hmm. in the process of doing it and yeah. have a, an internalized understanding of what was the mistake that was made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That skin in the game means everything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right, you want to go get trashed? Yeah. Let's do your shit first. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs>